It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Let's get right to it. A couple years ago, the legislature dissolved what was the Government Accountability Board in the wake, essentially, of, of what I have described as a debacle of a John Doe investigation. Uh, the functions of the Government Accountability Board were split into two. You have an Elections Commission and you have an Ethics Commission. Many of the people who worked at the old Government Accountability Board have either retired or, or left government service, but, but a few of them have stayed. And two of the people who worked at the Government Accountability Board in, in legal roles um, have become interim directors of both the Ethics Board and the Elections Board. One of those, and both of them, are up for Senate confirmation next week. At least that's what the, the expectation is. Uh, a number of Republicans in the state legislature have questioned the fitness of both of these individuals essentially because of their roles at the old government accountability board. Now, in the case of both the chiefs of the elections board and the ethics board, both individuals have the support of their, their board members, both Republicans and Democrats. But again, it's a Senate confirmation matter. We are joined in the studio by Mike Haas, who is the interim administrator of the the state elections board so first of all welcome thanks for coming down thanks for having me jeff i appreciate it um okay and and just so people understand um as you come down here you know i have been a a pretty um outspoken critic of the old government accountability board and the john doe investigation correct absolutely right and um when you you know reached out indicated you want to come in and do interviews uh, it was kind of no holds barred there's no limits on our questions or things like that sure, right Sure, absolutely happy to try to answer the questions okay um let's can, can i jeff, jeff just first a uh, small correction you had stated that most of the people at the jb are retired or gone that's actually the opposite is true only uh the director and the ethics division administrator retired or left the agency the legislation specifically said every staff person at the jb had a spot at either the Ethics or Elections Commission. So most of the staff at the JB is now working for either the Ethics or Elections Commission. And I think the reason it's relevant is because I obviously say I was there, mm-hmm. and the legislature apparently did not have a problem ensuring in the legislation that I would have a position at the Elections Commission. Now, there, um, the, the Kevin Kennedy, who ran the Government Accountability mm-hmm. Board, he retired, correct? Correct. And Jonathan Becker, who correct. was one of the, did, did you report to Jonathan Becker? Was that how it worked? No. Uh, I, I was a staff attorney. Um, from 2008 until uh, January 2013, when I became Elections Division Administrator, and in both capacities, I reported directly to Kevin Kennedy. Got it. Now, I, I've spent a lot of time reviewing the, the 90-some page report that, mm-hmm. that the Department of Justice issued, and your name does not appear in there very much. Um, at, at the start, let me ask you this. Um, you were not involved in a day-to-day basis with the John, what, what we're going to call the John Doe investigation, correct? John Doe 2, correct. Right. Right. I was uh, closely involved in John Doe 1, especially the matter involving the railroad executive that was convicted of laundering campaign contributions right. through employees. And when we talk about John Doe 2, we're talking about the investigation into potential campaign finance violations and the search warrants and things like that that we're going to get into. You, you had... You had little role in those, am I correct? Yes. One of the things the Attorney General's report says is that your your role was to review and, and edit briefs or something to that extent? Sure. 
What, what did that entail? So it, it was it was primarily for the litigation which challenged the investigation. So not really, not even for the primary investigation. And so, as a recovering attorney, I know you know how this works when you have a number of attorneys working on briefs. It uh, it's a benefit to have people review and edit. I wasn't involved in the you know the editing of really the legal arguments, how they were structured, what positions were taken. I was sort of asked to come on towards the end to lend another set of eyes to the 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 structure, the logic, the word choice. Um, and so, as the attorney general report indicated, it was, it was basically minor editing um, and reviewing of briefs. You were not responsible for developing the the legal theories that were advanced and, and ultimately rejected at different levels by the courts. Correct. Okay. Let let me let me just start off with a couple. Broad questions, and then we can we can get into some specifics if that's okay. Um, one of the things that really struck me about the Attorney General's report, and let me just read a, a, a section of this: uh, the Department of Justice is deeply concerned by what appears to have been the weaponizing of GAB by partisans in furtherance of political goals. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you agree with that? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, there is a lot of conclusions that are being made by people who were not involved in the investigation, did not have access to all the evidence, were not in the closed sessions with the six judges who were on the board, and evaluated the evidence. So I don't think it's a, it's a fair conclusion. I, you know, this, this allegation about weaponizing partisanship in the JB, absolutely false. In fact, if that were the case, the separate investigation into campaign campaigning uh, in, in the Capitol or out-of-state offices that the Attorney General term John Doe 3. If, if it was so partisan and weaponized, then why didn't the GAB staff recommend to the GAB that the investigation continue rather than terminate it? Why didn't all those documents become public rather than being kept confidential under the law? Brian Bell, who is also worked at the Government Accountability Board, who is the director of the State Ethics Committee, who is facing confirmation hearings, mm-hmm. presumably on Tuesday. Um, <clears throat> yesterday, I'm, I'm just quoting from one of the things that he said, um, in, and so this is somebody else who's at the Government Accountability Board, same time. He says, incredibly, um, someone as transparently partisan as Shane Falk, who was one of your colleagues, mm-hmm. was appointed as staff counsel and allowed to continue to serve in that role. He displayed open partisanship and blatant insubordination towards division administrators, the director, and the board. He also enabled a climate at the GAB that made it acceptable to make offensive or disparaging remarks about political parties, candidates, and elected officials. Other staff, including some in management, further and tolerated such a climate. Okay, now that's that's one of the colleagues who's mm-hmm. now in charge of the um, Ethics Commission. Do you agree with that? A lot to unpack there. I don't. Uh, I was Brian's supervisor for over a year. He was a junior staff member in the Elections Division, which I was the administrator of. His job was basically to collect elections data. During that entire time, and when he left, he transferred to the Ethics Division, uh, he did not express any concern to me that there was anything that he was uncomfortable about. I thought he had a positive experience working for us. Uh, even when he worked in the ethics division, he was not involved in the investigations. He's acknowledged that. He was not in the closed sessions where they were discussed. He was not involved in decisions about how penalties were assessed. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's unfortunate. Uh, um, again, there was no... Um, the the management was not fostering any 
partisan atmosphere. Um, well, well, we, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but mm-hmm. a, a number of, of emails mm-hmm. from some staff members have become public and are included. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to seriously suggest that those emails don't reflect a hostility and a degree of partisanship, are you? Well, uh, I mean, we I mean what, which, which emails well, I'm talking about talking? many of the Shane Falk emails. Um, you're, mm-hmm. you I'll, I'll, suggest- say this, I'll say this about uh, Shane Falk, Jeff. Shane Falk was an equal opportunity outrage person, and you probably know attorneys like this in law enforcement agencies. Shane was a bit of a pit bull, but it went both ways. The first three years of the Government Accountability Board, the Democrats held the governorship as well as both houses of the legislature, and Shane was just as tough on the Democrats as he was on the Republicans, and it never affected his work. He was meticulous and uh, tenacious. And he was also overseen by management, and the judges on the Government Accountability Board were directing his work. He was not ultimately making decisions. Now, you know, we can, well, we again, can I, ideally... I don't mean to interrupt you, but, okay. but there's a series of, of again, emails mm-hmm. when members of the Milwaukee District Attorney's Office yeah. and the County District Attorney's Office and the special prosecutor mm-hmm. started to express concerns, and I'm going to you my phrase, that this investigation was going off the rails, mm-hmm. that legal theories were not valid. Um, the, the emails that were sent from Falk mm-hmm. um, questioned the judge's intelligence, questioned the intelligence <laughs> of the prosecutors. It, it's one thing to be tenacious. Is that how would you describe that? I, that was one, that was one uh, adjective I used. I, you, know, you were in a prosecutor's role. I, I assume that you had colleagues that would have frank discussions about the merits of legal arguments, the legal strategy to take. That's what was happening. I wasn't, uh, so again, I wasn't involved, so it's a bit like asking you to defend some error that happened in the morning show. I can understand the reasoning that took place of what was happening. I'm not here to defend Shane Falk. Well, but no, but, but I guess the question that the Senate's going to be considering, mm-hmm. Mike, is. I think a lot of us view this as a very, very dark time, and a lot of us believe this was an investigation that completely ran off off the rails. And I guess the concern is, if you're going to be heading up the elections board, um, could something like this happen uh, again? And I guess I'm a little bit surprised by what I see as a reluctance on your part to acknowledge that this was an investigation that had serious problems. I didn't say that. First of all, the investigation was conducted under the statutes that existed at the time. The statutes have been changed since then. The interpretation of the statutes have been changed by the Supreme Court. The statutes previously, uh, I mean, that's what Justice Wilcox was fined under, the exact same statutes that were being investigated in these cases. The elections, to get you to your question, the Elections Commission has no investigative role. We administer elections. We administer the laws that the legislature passes the photo ID law, voter registration law, absentee voting laws. We have no investigative role. And I think it's unfortunate that this attorney general report, which I believe is seriously flawed, has become the basis for evaluating my credentials when I have nine years of working in the state elections agency with an excellent record of working with everybody, both parties in the legislature, legislative staff, 1,853 local clerks, the Department of Homeland Security, all of our partners that help us in running elections in the state. Do you think it is unfair to judge your performance based on your assessment of the appropriateness of tactics that were used 
by others in the Government Accountability Board. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sort of three steps removed from this, Jeff. You have to remember that district attorneys executed the search warrants that people were critical of. The GAB staff, not to mention me, the GAB staff was not involved in when the search warrants were going to be executed, what evidence was seized. Uh, those were all decisions of the district attorneys, not the GAB, and certainly not me. Uh, and so I've tried to lay out for the senators and have talked and uh, and I, I've met with, with all of them when I was first appointed. I've laid out my credentials, my experience, the success of the Elections Commission. Nobody has come to us and said, we don't like how you're running elections. Mm -hmm. We are the only state that conducted a statewide recount. recount of the presidential contest successfully. I mean, there, we, uh, there are numerous examples I can give you of the work we do, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, that have benefited from the assistance I've provided to them. I assume that when you were working at the Government Accountability Board, um, there were discussions between the attorneys, I think you were alluding to this earlier, about tactics that were going to be used and legal theories that were going to be advanced. I assume that you were party to that in connection with the John Doe? Uh, I, I was not involved in strategy meetings, you know, looking, this is the approach we wanted to. I, was, I, was, I sat in on all the closed sessions of the Government Accountability Board when the investigations were discussed. So that was as, as much of a, an update I was getting. Were you aware that the search warrants in October of 2013 were going to be executed? Nope, I heard about it after the fact. Um, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. um, again, one of the controversial aspects was the decision to do pre-dawn raids and things like mm -hmm. that, which, candidly, based on my experience as mm -hmm. federal prosecutor, was highly unusual in a case like this. Mm -hmm. um, I, would, I would agree in, with that. In, in, no retrospect, that well, in, in retrospect, do you think that was the way to go? Uh, my personal opinion is I would have preferred that they, you know, that they were done in a little bit more uh, transparent way as far as, uh, you know, as far as search warrants, you know, can be executed. You know, I will say I wasn't the district attorney. I don't know what evidence they were looking at or what concerns that they they had. Um, but, Jeff, you know, I just recently read the attorney general who was being uh, criticized for something his department was doing, saying, Hindsight's 2020, and that was the Attorney General's defense regarding his investigation of the Lincoln Hill situation. So, sure, maybe things could have been done better. Uh, we, everybody, you know, makes mistakes. I think the special prosecutor that the GAB hired, uh, you know, may, Frank was Fran Schmitz, former federal prosecutor. I mean, he he may if he was in charge of executing the search warrants. Maybe they would have been done differently. Can we can hang around for one more second? Sure, absolutely. Let's, let's take a quick break. We're talking to interim administrator from the State Elections Board, Mike Haas. It's 1222. This is Jeff Wagner. 1225, Jeff Wagner. We're talking to interim administrator Mike Haas of the State Elections Commission, State Elections Board. Uh, he's scheduled, at least we think, perhaps for a confirmation hearing on Tuesday. A number of Republicans in the state Senate have said it's a no-go because of his involvement, um, whatever that might be. And, uh, you know, we're, that's what we're talking about in the uh, former GAB and the John Doe investigation. We, we were talking off the air just for a minute, Mike. And one of the things that, that trouble, had troubled me throughout mm -hmm. what, and, and why I think weaponizing was an appropriate term was – Lawyers at the GAB, and I understand that you weren't directing the investigation, it struck me were pushing the envelope in trying to pursue investigations. And at one point in time, you had one judge after another saying, no, 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 and the, the GAB and the special prosecutors continued 
Does that give you any pause at all? Well, I would say this. You know, we often look at court decisions after the fact and say, well, that seems obvious, that decision, that's how the, the, the courts ruled. But when you're in the middle of an investigation and you had a number of attorneys looking at this, uh, there was back and forth. It was debated in many different meetings of the Government Accountability Board. As I said, this was a law that was enforced with a significant fine against the Supreme Court justice, same law that was being um, applied um, in similar activity. So it was not obvious that this um, uh, con that the investigation was had any constitutional concerns. Um, and, and, and in addition, there were six uh, former judges who evaluated the law, debated it, and we came back to them meeting after meeting to make sure we were on track and we were doing what they approved. I, I, I guess one of the things to that point then, I, I think that, that struck a lot of people, was the, the scope of the evidence that was obtained. Sure. Thousands, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of documents, e personal emails, much of which, most of which, had no relationship at all to any sort mm -hmm. of investigation. As you look back in retrospect, were the were, was the gathering evidence too broad, um, or was this just what you do in investigation? Well, so again, you're asking me to defend a decision of the district attorney that was, I was not involved in. You reviewed legal arguments later on in briefs and right. stuff defending this, right? Right. But okay. so, so, but what you're saying is, I it would 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 I have um, drafted the search warrants differently? The GAB did not draft any search warrants. So you're asking me to defend a decision of the district attorney. And you know, again, as as a prosecutor, I assume you've had cases where all the evidence collected is not relevant. And in this electronic age, when you're asking Yahoo and Google to turn over emails, they don't sift through the emails for you and say, this is relevant, this is not. And if you're talking about then about this, uh, what the attorney well, I guess then I'm, I'm concerned with the, the scope of, of the request, because when I was a prosecutor, we would never ask for and we would never have a judge grant, um, if I'm investigating a drug dealer, access to personal emails of a state senator regarding right. medical conditions of her daughter. Right. And, and, Right. I haven't looked. I haven't seen the search warrants. I wasn't involved in the search warrants. Let me let me um, put this to you, Jeff. As I mentioned, I, I I don't to the extent that I you're talking about all the evidence collected in this quote John Doe three investigation, um, hundreds of thousands of emails. Um, if I told you that the Democrats were in charge of state government for three years, and that there was evidence that they were discussing campaigning on state time and that there was evidence that there was an alternative communication system set up within state government to discuss that and that one of the state aid, one of the uh, people involved said i hope that the gab does not discover this would you have expected the agency to investigate the democrats what i'm telling you is that the evidence was at least equivalent to that and so after to say the, that that should not be but, that, but after and, the, and then after the judges Started the judge saying never, no. no well, no, like the supervising judge, not the we're, judge we're in the GAB. We're talking about the John Doe three. Okay, you're, the John Doe three, the GAB, the special investigators, the outside investigators, then looked at that evidence after the district attorney said, "You guys are the experts." They looked at the evidence, brought it back to the board, and said, "There's not enough here. We recommend closing the investigation." It was closed. 
it remained confidential from whatever that was, 2012, 2013, until the Attorney General, ironically, publicized what the evidence was. Well, the evidence was never, most, much of the evidence, though, was never returned to the targets. I mean, it wasn't until the Attorney General's report that a number of people found out that their personal emails had been the subject of seizure and were sitting in, in boxes in, in the basement of the Ethics Commission. Doesn't that give you pause at all? No, that does. I think, and, and but so what you had was a number of different actors here. You had, again, the evidence that came from the District Attorney's Office. You had the special prosecutor who had overall oversight. And you had um, secured... Uh, files that were being kept by the Government Accountability Board. And so Fran Schmitz, I think, did the best he could to collect everything pursuant to the court order. Now, you know, we don't have a bank of paralegals or records custodians. All of the records were secured. Um, they were turned over to the Ethics Commission. The Ethics Commission was responsible for uh, for turning them all over. So I, again, cannot answer for the Ethics Commission. Right, but but as somebody, again, who who wants to be the administrator of the Elections Commission, would I be correct in saying that you, you hear how documents were obtained and how they were maintained in, in boxes with apparently no records keeping as to what people had? D does that give you pause? Do you think I, that was an acceptable I, I way think, to handle it? No, I think that that's certainly an area that, that could be improved. Again, this is not – I'm being asked to defend things that I was not involved in that I will not – that is not a subject area of our commission that has nothing to do with my performance. So, sure, there could have been improvements in how things were stored. Sure, but – but but again, you you but see that, that doesn't the, the affect my qualifications. Well, for this but job. but isn't the concern that if you don't have issues with what happened in the department you worked at, that that might then bleed over to your new job? You just asked me if I thought that that could have been done better, yeah. and I said yes, that that could have been improved. Um, we're, we're just about out of time, but okay. you want to, let me. I, you've been you've been very good about answering the questions I've had. Do you want to make a? Lots of people are listening. Want to make a statement or something? <laughs> well, I'll give you the time. Thanks, Jeff. I, no, I, sure, I'll, be, I'll be brief. I mean, I yesterday we gave a pretty comprehensive written statement to the senators. We um, posted a press release to summarize that uh, uh, the the ethics commission unanimously um, appointed me. There have been um, five Republican appointees of the, uh, I'm sorry, the Elections Commission that have supported my nomination and appointment, three Democratic appointees. They're the ones who have the most risk or the most at stake in this appointment. If things go wrong at an election, and this is serious stuff with foreign government actors attacking our elections, they're the ones that are going to have to answer uh, about what went wrong. And they have complete confidence in my administration of the uh, of the agency and management of it. As I said, we have a lot of partners that we work with, um, and all I ask the Senate is to be judged on the merits of, of, of my work. And uh, and to that, to that end, um, Wisconsin, on short notice last year, did have to do a, a recall. I'm uh, not a recall. I'm sorry, a recount in, the, in the election, and, and you supervised that. Correct. Right? And, and it came did. off without a hitch. It did. And, and to... I remember the weekend before the results were certified, I spent most of the weekend on the phone with the Department of Justice and Governor Walker's office. They wanted to make sure we expedited the certification of results. As you recall, there was a question about whether or not Wisconsin's electoral votes would be jeopardized. I was the one that made sure things stayed on track and we certified it so that would not happen. Uh, so. You know, again, claims of partisanship, I would challenge anybody to talk to any Republican in the Capitol or in office and ask them about their interaction with me on uh, a working level. Fair enough. Mike Haas, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, it. Jeff. 
It's 1239. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, I always hate to take about, talk about interviews after the guest has left the studio, but I, I mean, here, here is my take on, on this. Um, I, I think that Mike Haas has a valid point when he says, yes, I was an attorney at the Government Accountability Board when this stuff was going on. I was not directly involved in this. I was not the one making the decisions. And so it's not fair to hold it against me as I move forward uh, decisions that were made. In this example, at Jeff, if they do something on the morning show that creates all sorts of controversy, you know, is it fair that you be held responsible? That, that, that argument has an appeal. The flip side of it, though, is that, at least in my opinion, you had a government accountability board that went completely and totally off off the rails. Um, whether you want to lay it on the district attorneys or the special prosecutor or the attorneys at the government accountability board who fancied themselves as experts in criminal law when they had no experience. And I understand this isn't Mike Haas, but we're pushing for legal theories that I think should have been apparent that they weren't going to be valid. We're using techniques like the search warrants that were executed at, at average citizens' homes, you know, these pre-dawn raids. This, this was irresponsible in the extreme. On top of that, after judges started shutting down this, the refusal to take no for an answer, I think, has to be troubling. So then the question that the Senate's going to have to decide is, the, the fact that, in this case, Mike Haas doesn't, while he, he says, well, I, I've got some concerns with these different sort of things, but I wasn't involved in that. I guess the question becomes, if you don't see some of these problems in the investigation um, and the way, you know, the office when you were there worked, um, does that reflect on your judgment moving forward? And that's what people are going to have to decide. I, I guess I, I am also a little bit disappointed because I, I don't think you can rationally look at what the Government Accountability Board did. Look at some of the emails that came from some of the lawyers and the exchanges that went back and forth between assistant district attorneys and the special prosecutor when they started to want to back off because they became unsure that the theories they were advancing were valid. You, you look at the tone and the nature of the things that were coming from other attorneys than Haas. I, I guess it's kind of disturbing to me that you that there's this inability to recognize that, OK, we're, we're going down a bad road here. And maybe we need to really kind of back off. And I understand perhaps you can blame that on on the judges. But at the same time, these things, in my opinion, at least, are are driven by the staff attorneys who are the ones that are giving advice. And and Mike Haas was not the guy that did that, but he was there at the time. In addition, I I do wonder seriously about the, the climate that existed at the Government Accountability Board. And it's not just the Attorney General's report that talks about how GAB was weaponized. And that's that's certainly, I think, something that's valid when you look at the text of some of the emails. But it's it's not just the Attorney General saying it. I mean, again, yesterday, the, the other guy who was in the Government Accountability Board who is up for Senate confirmation, the head of the state, eth- interim head of the State Ethics Commission, you know, Brian Bell, who, who worked in the Government Accountability at the same time, Bill, at the same time. I mean, he's 
someone who's saying, again, the quotation was incredibly, someone as transparently partisan as Shane Falk, was, who was the guy in the Government Accountability Board directing the investigation, was appointed as staff counsel and allowed to continue to serve in that role. He displayed open partisanship and blatant insubordination towards division administrators, the director and the board. He also enabled a climate at the GAB that made it acceptable to make offensive and disparaging remarks about political parties, candidates, and elected officials. Other staff, including some in management, further uh, tolerated such a, a climate. So I do think it's interesting that now you have the two guys who are up for appointment, and one says this was going on, and Mike Haas says, well, I, did, I didn't see that. I, I, don't, I don't agree with him at all. Um, I guess the Senate's going to have to decide where this all comes down and whether, again, working at the Government Accountability Board under what I think were – it was a very, very bad time in, in Wisconsin political history. I think it was a very dark day, and um, they're going to have to decide whether that makes a difference or not. You know, the other interesting question is if the Senate does not confirm him, d- does he have to leave the, the job? And there's some interesting legal issues – if he refuses to go or the board refuses to let him go, if the Senate doesn't confirm him, um, you might be interested looking at a very, very interesting lawsuit as well. But um, that's the, the latest word on the Government Accountability Board. And I do appreciate um, interim administrator um, Mike Haas coming down and spending some time. All right. When we come back, President Trump makes his announcement about fake news stories. And my question is, does he have a point? Stick around. It's 1244. This is Jeff Wagner. 1248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, yesterday evening, President Trump rolls out his his 10 fake news awards. And there's no secret that the president's been at war with the media. I, I don't think any reasonable person could look at this and say that, that the media really isn't out. The mainstream media isn't out to get President Trump. At the same time, I can see that he brings some of this on himself. But here, here here's his top 10. Uh, New York Times' Paul Krugman, who is a very liberal business writer, claimed that on the day of President Trump's historic landslide victory, the economy would never recover. Well, clearly Krugman's wrong. I don't know that that's fake news. That's just a wrong opinion, and Paul Krugman's wrong a lot. Number two, ABC News' Brian Ross chokes and sends markets in a downward spiral with a false report. This was the false report that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn um had had met with Russian officials before the election. Um, the, the answer is he, he did it after the election. Big difference. Three, CNN falsely reported that candidate Donald Trump and his son Donald Trump Jr. had access to hacked documents from WikiLeaks. That was, of course, false. Four, uh, Time falsely reported that President Trump removed a bust of Martin Luther King Jr. from the Oval Office. That was, they did it, and that was correct. That was false. Washington Post falsely reported that President's massive sold-out rally in Pensacola, Florida was empty. Dishonest reporters showed picture of empty arena hours before the crowd started pouring in. He, he's right. They did that. CNN falsely edited a video to make it appear that President Trump defiantly overfed fish during a visit with the Japanese prime minister. Japanese prime minister actually um, 
led the way with the feeding. He's right there. CNN, number seven, falsely reported about Anthony Scaramucci's meeting with a Russian, but retracted it due to a significant breakdown in process. Um, Yeah, CNN was wrong. Um, Eight, Newsweek falsely reported that Polish First Lady um, did not shake President Trump's hand. Nine, CNN falsely reported that former FBI Director James Comey would dispute President Trump's claim that he was told he is not under investigation. Um, And CNN got that story wrong. Number 10, the New York Times falsely claimed on the front page that the Trump administration had hidden a climate report. Um, He's right there. And last but not least, Russia collusion. Russian collusion is perhaps the greatest hoax perpetrated on the American people. There is no collusion. Okay, well, that's that's not necessarily fake news. That's that's his opinion. In many, if not most, of the examples he gives, the president is correct. These were news stories that were reported or tweets that were sent out by you know people associated with these news organizations that were false. They, they were wrong. Um, in most cases cited where the news organization was wrong, um, it was promptly corrected. I mean, you know, ABC News is the classic example. They, they report this. Um, causes the market to go into the tank for a while. And, and then, because if ABC's report had been correct, it might have potentially led to impeachment or criminal charges. ABC gets it wrong, but the reporter who does it ends up getting suspended, and, and they end up correcting it. So in many, many cases, again, the Trump is right that the reports were, if you want to call them fake news, call them fake news. If you want to call them just simply wrong, he's right in identifying wrong reports in most cases though uh, again there was an immediate or a correction pretty close to after the report came out so i guess the question becomes if you have a mainstream media that makes mistakes and gets stuff wrong but they promptly acknowledge their mistake and correct it is that really fake news okay 414-799-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line I don't know that this is is fake news. What it is, it's examples of, I think, sloppy reporting, a rush to judgment, and an inherent hatred on the part of a lot of reporters and news organizations for President Trump and the Trump administration, which leads them to getting stuff wrong and then having to be in a position to correct it. 414-799-1620. Yes, my big take on this is, if the mainstream media doesn't want to get bashed over the head with this, it's simple. Get it right. Just get it right. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this really, is this fake news, or is it just sloppy journalism, error-prone reporting, that once the error is found, you, you correct. And my point would be, maybe you, you should vet the stuff when you have explosive and embarrassing stuff. Maybe you should vet it before you put it on the air. 414-799-1620. Let's, um, tell you, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with your calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1253. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1257. This is Jeff Wagner. We're going to carry this conversation over in the top of the hour. So if you're on the line, please hold on. Um, uh, Donald Trump comes out with his list of top 11 fake news stories. And th- th- the truth is, at least eight or nine of them are clearly fake news stories, all of which were reported that make the Trump administration or the president look bad, and all of which were wrong. Right? Th- does he have a point? Danielle in West Dallas. Danielle, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, so at first I was going to say that it wasn't fake news, because I really don't like that term that's being thrown around there. However, it is, and I guess I would maybe more call it vindictive or vengeful news. Because right. let's face it, none of these stories are painting President Trump in you a know, positive light. Good light. Yeah, They're right. all negative. So right. it would be different if they were coming out with a story that was fake news that they were retracting, you know, that said he, um, I don't know. Right, exactly. It's, something something some positive. It, right, right, right. The, the stories that are false are all negative. You're, you're exactly right. And I like right. your term. It's, kind of, it's vindictive. Yeah. It's vindictive news. So, yeah, instead of saying it's, it, it is fake news, I mean, most of the stories you listed are were not true. Right. But... They're vindictive. And so, in, and again, we know these reporters hate him. We know he's not a big fan of them. But that's when you start going, okay, you know, you're continually and continually having these errors. I'm putting right. up air quotes, right? Errors. And they're always the errors on one side. <laughs> they're always right. on errors on one side. So that's, that's why it's just kind of suspicious. Thanks, so. Nicole. I, well, I mean, I, I think, it, and, and I, understand, I understand the president in some respects brings it on himself, but you would think that that would be even more reason for trying to get something right. And yet these are examples after example. And some are, some are kind of small, but others are, are big. You, ABC runs a report suggesting that the president, that they, they have information that the president of the United States might have directed somebody to meet with Russians before the election. And then a couple hours later, after the stock market goes into the tank, because that would potentially be an impeachable offense, they come out and say, never mind. Well, how could you get a story like that that wrong? We're going to continue this conversation. If you're on the line, please hold on. Does the president have a point? when he talks about fake news and, as an example, sets out some of these stories. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1259, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We'll pick it up right there on the other side of the hour. 108, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Glad to have you with us. Now, okay, yesterday evening, President Trump rolls out his 11 fake news stories. One is uh, an opinion, Paul Krugman, the often wrong columnist for the New York Times, predicting that the economy would tank. Well, that's not really a false story. That's just his opinion, and he was wrong on that. But most of the things that he cites are valid examples of where the media got it wrong. They ran with stories, almost all the, all the stories, made the Trump administration and the president look bad, and they were all they were all wrong. I mean, perhaps the most dramatic one is the report from ABC where they said that, hey, you know, one of the people that was associated with the Trump campaign, um, former security advisor Michael Flynn, had met with the Russians before the election. Okay, which is a big deal. After the election, it's not. But they got it wrong. Now, in almost all, actually, in all the cases, they did retract the statements um, relatively quickly to kind of correct this. But they were, in fact, wrong. Is it fake news? And actually, I agree with one of our callers before the break. I don't know if it's fake news, but it, it's getting it wrong. It's sloppy journalism. It's vindictive. And to me, it shows an agenda. And if the media doesn't want to deal with issues of fake news and having their integrity questioned, the, the simple answer is just get it right. Don't rush into these stories. Oh, my God, we've got this breaking story. It's going to bring down the Trump administration, and it ends up being wrong. Um, Doc on the Northwest Side sends me a text. Jeff, it's called throw it against the wall and see what sticks. Put a subliminal thought in people's mind. See what happens. Tim in Fredonia. Tim, thanks for waiting. You're on WTMJ. Jeff, long time no talk to a young man. Thanks for calling. I am well. Thank you, you, sir. um, 
you know, Jeff, let me preface this by saying I don't, I don't agree with all the tweeting. I, you know, I'm saying some yep, me too. that are unsaid, but he could stop tweeting tomorrow, Jeff. Trump could, and the daily proctology exam would continue. That's right. just a fact. That's just a fact. Now, having said that, how I would define it as fake, Jeff, is if it have a, has an impact. Brian Ross' story had an impact on everybody's daily life. The stock market tanked. Yep. Correct. So that had an impact. That guy better not pick up another microphone or edit another film in his entire lousy career, ever. Nobody should ever hire that guy. So I guess my definition of is vindictive, and it has an impact, Jeff, it's fake. And most of those stories did have impacts. Now, just imagine, just imagine if ABC's uh, 530 News Tonight would come out with positive stories about all the regulations that have been changed. Right. The, a stock market, Jeff. They'll, they'll go over, I'll hit 26,000, that'll be a 15-second story. If it went the other way, it would be a three-minute story, okay? Right. So they're showing their bias in doing that. But just imagine how his, his opinion would change or, or the, his, his, uh, his uh, approval rating would change, Jeff, if they talk about all the regulations that were lifted. Well, right, this, it's the that. whole – no, Tim, thanks for the call. You're, you're right. It's the whole tone of, of coverage. And look, it's no secret. If you are a conservative, you understand that you are not going to be treated the same way as a liberal will. That's just the reality, and, and it's been the reality, and it will continue to be the reality moving forward because the people who tend to gravitate towards the media into the, those positions, they tend to be liberal. Not all, but most are. That, I think, is probably correct. If you put people under oath and you said, you know, who did you vote for, Obama or Romney? My guess is an overwhelming percentage of the members of the media that voted would end up voting for Obama. That's just the truth. You didn't see these type of stories, as a general rule, involving the Obama administration because uh, there was a reluctance to portray the Obama administration in a negative light and if there were negative stories you knew they were vetted out the wazoo all right before we run with this one we've got to make sure that this is right and that we've got all our t's crossed and our eyes dotted with trumpets oh my gosh this is the story we can make him look like a buffoon or we can make him look bad or we can make it look like he's going to be impeached tomorrow let's run with it and you get it wrong and again i i have no problems I have no problems with aggressively covering politicians. I would like to see it more evenly spread out. And I have no problems about warts and all reporting. That, that's fair. That's what reporters do. But you gotta get it right. And there's a lot of not getting it right that goes on. Carl in Sheboygan. Carl, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi. Long time listener. Thank Thanks you for calling. For having me on the show. Sure. Uh, yeah. Once they put it out there, it's out there for yep. everybody to see and read and hear. Yep. And with them talking last week about the F bomb, what happened to our FCC? Don't aren't they supposed to have like a, a five or six second rule where they can't? Well, there are um, out there. Well, I mean, I, I guess. And thanks for. I mean, you're, you're talking about the the whole use of um, the 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 blank hole comment. Um, it was interesting how the dialogue changes because if I. I just, it, you know, CNN, a CNN's cable. So cable has different regulations than like over the air type of stuff. So you can say that word on, on cable. It is amazing that CNN was so fascinated. I think at one point in time, it was like over 70 references to that. You could have the discussion without using that word. You know, we did on two occasions last week. But again, it, it is the, the rules change with President Trump. Um, lots of other presidents used bad language. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was that way. Bill Clinton cursed repeatedly. 
I am told that Barack Obama did as well. But of course, you know, that stuff didn't end up getting reported. Again, I, I know why people in the media bristle at the whole notion of, of fake news. And I, I get it, which is all the more reason why they should get it right. Lord knows the president probably gives people an, enough there's enough controversial stuff going on that you shouldn't have to make stuff up. Just saying. Big story number three is coming up. What do you do with failing bus routes? It's 115, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. With another Super Bowl just a couple of weeks away, what strategy are advertisers expected to take with this year's ever-popular commercials? Gene Miller has a preview tomorrow at 7.50 during Wisconsin's Morning News. You know, one one final thought and kind of an interesting text um, regarding the whole Trump thing. And I think it's a fair point. Here's the text. Trump has lied over 2,000 times in just his first year in office, and the pro-Trump people completely ignore that. If he didn't lie every day of his life, then maybe the media would treat him differently. Huh. Well, okay. If if there's a lie or a false statement or an inconsistent statement, you, you know the media is all over it and is reporting on that. And that's what I was saying. I, Lord knows Donald Trump gives, especially, you know, liberal lean, left-leaning journalists, gives them all sorts of ammunition to write about, which is all the more reason why they, they need to get it right. It's not like there's a shortage of stuff if you want to criticize President Trump that's out there. Why do you have to, if not make stuff up, why do you not have to report stuff, which, why do you have to report stuff which turns out to be wrong? Hey, coming up in about 11 minutes or so, I've been wanting to talk to you about this all day. Interesting story involving how old is too old to own a dog? Uh, stick around. It's an interesting conversation to have. Um, before that, big story number three. And this, this is, it is a local story. I do not know whether you ride the bus or ever have ridden the bus. But for people who do ride the bus, it is it is important. It is your link to be able to get around. Some bus routes are massively successful. Lots of people ride them. Other bus routes are what I would describe as underperforming. You know, they don't come close to paying for themselves. And nobody, I think, argues or should argue that that public transportation in and of itself should be completely self-sufficient. You know, it's just, um, you know, part of the idea of public transportation is that, you know, we we being the taxpayers are going to end up subsidizing. We're going to subsidize the bus system. You you do. We we subsidize those of us who drive cars by, again, the roads. You know, there's tax money that goes into keeping the, the roads. But the truth of the matter is that there are bus routes that are underperforming. Now, here's the deal. The Milwaukee County Transit Authority, the the bus company, is looking at about $900,000 worth of cuts in their, their system's budget for 2018. And so what they are looking at doing is they're looking at nine different routes, all of which are are low performing. And in many of these cases, not all, but many of the cases, there's only a handful of people that that ride the the bus, you know, on a given day, 10, 15, 20 people, something like that, you know, back and forth to where they're getting. So there's not enough people that are riding the bus to, uh, again, make it worthwhile. So the bus company looks at this stuff and says, okay, we've got to figure out ways to cut money here. We've got these, these bus routes 
that are, and again, I'm going to use the word underperforming. People aren't riding them. We don't expect them to pay for themselves, but there, there's not that much use that's going on, so they're talking about cutting them. And of course, anytime you do this, you get all sorts of people that show up and say, oh, no, you, you can't do this. Uh, it's going to be terrible. Story in today's Journal Sentinel. MAT students, T students, instructors and officials urged Milwaukee County supervisors on Wednesday to prevent the elimination of the only bus route that links the downtown campus with MATC North in Mequon. This is, um, it's like way out on like 76th, kind of 76th and Mequon Road. Um, students enrolled in several programs at Milwaukee Area Technical College rely on the one bus route to take them to required classes in Mequon, said an economics instructor at both campuses, um, etc. So they're, they're saying, oh, this is going to be terrible that, you know, we, we only have a handful of kids who really do this, but the ones that do it need it. 414-799-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, here's the issue when you boil it all down. In the real world, if you have a product that is not selling, you, you stop selling that product. If you own a series of fast food restaurants, if my producer grew and I had, I don't know, six burger doodles scattered throughout the Milwaukee metropolitan area, and four of them were really popular, and two of them were just money pits for whatever reason, what would we do? We would close the, the money pits. And it might inconvenience some of the people that really liked our, you know, burger doodle hamburgers or whatever, who now would have to travel further. But it was a decision that we ended up making. So at 414-799-1620, is this the way to go about cutting routes? Looking, if you got to save money, you look at the underperforming routes and you get rid of them. 414-799-1620. My answer is, is yeah. I, I mean, I don't see any other way to do that. Um, transit company says, hey, we, we've got a huge hole in the budget, and what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of some of the underperforming routes. That, to me, only makes sense, and I understand it's going to inconvenience some people, but it, it's life. 123, we're back with the calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Nicole in Sheboygan. Nicole, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, there is a so technical college up here in Sheboygan. They have a small bus that transports students from Cleveland to Sheboygan. Why can't MATC just buy a small bus and transport the people and have them pay for that transportation? Nicole, I am so glad. You know, it, it, when, I, when I saw this story, that, that was the first thing that, that I thought of. If you re- now obviously they don't have obviously there's not that many people that are using this bus line because if there were it wouldn't be an underperforming bus line but but you're exactly right if there really are a lot of students that need to go from downtown out to the the Mequon campus well all right you you run a shuttle service i mean maybe two or three times a day or whatever you know you you take one of the vans you have and you run people back and forth and you charge them or you don't charge them but yeah that that's the that's the easy answer to to at least this situation it seems to me it's not rocket science. I just don't understand why they're making it a big deal. Well, they're making it a big deal because the idea is, well, we can't have any cuts in public transportation. Well, all right. You know, if people aren't riding particular bus routes, it, it only makes, and you've got to save some money somewhere, it only makes sense to cut the bus routes that people are riding, right? Yep. 
Yeah, thanks for calling, Nicole. See, that's that, that's now. If I was again, if I was on the board of supervisors and and somebody said this to me, that was the first thing that popped into my mind. If I got the people, and we're just taking the MATC example, all right. If, if that's the idea that you've got a handful of people that need to go back and forth on a daily basis, all right, run a shuttle. Just just run the run your own shuttle. You know, have somebody drive the kids back and forth a couple times a day. Problem solved. Matter of fact, it would probably be more convenient than taking the bus. Jim in Kenosha. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, my thoughts on this were, uh, first of all, I, I am not a big fan of public transportation. I don't use it. However, I think it's necessary for the well-being of the city to uh, offer this service. Mm-hmm. The other thing is uh, there may be other ways of cutting costs than eliminating bus routes. I'm thinking, uh, you mentioned a shuttle. I'm thinking of a, a smaller bus, a, a van mm-hmm. of some sort that could solve this purpose at a much lower cost. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, right. If there's, an, thanks to call, if there's enough demand for that, maybe, maybe you try to explore some of these things. But I mean, part of the problem here is there's really not that much demand for this. So that, that, that's the underlying problem. But yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm open to different things. And look, I, I have no idea about how top-heavy the administration is at the Milwaukee County Transit System. And if you had to save money, could you get rid of a couple mid-level managers or things like that? I, I, I don't know. But I guess from my perspective, if really you have cut to the bone, and now the only way that you can make you know the books balance is to figure out, you know do we get rid of a couple underperforming routes? Of course you get rid of some underperforming routes. It, it's just that that's the thing that makes sense. And again, you've tried to find alternatives, and I think... I think, you know, Nicole and Jim were both right. You, you get vans. All right. If this is an issue, we got to get kids from MATC downtown out to the Mequon campus. Okay, MATC, all right, step up and, all right, take one of those vans that you use to, you know, drive around the, the basketball team or the volleyball team or, or whatever, and, you know, and, and, and repurpose that and say, okay, this is going to be our shuttle service and we're going to run it back and forth three times or four times a day. There you go. Problem solved. Okay, coming up in just a couple minutes, it is. I think my favorite story of the day and perhaps the most provocative story of the day, and this comes from a dog owner, how old is too old to own a dog? And there's an area outfit who is answering that question in a way that I think might surprise you. It's 134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Bucks hit the road this weekend. They're in Philadelphia for a matchup with the Sixers. Ted Davis will be courtside at the Wells Fargo Center with our Bucks shots pregame coverage starting at 610 Saturday night. I, I'm a little bit hesitant to do this topic because there's, as far as I'm concerned, people that, that work in the animal rescue area, these animal rescue groups are doing God's work. And so I, I am reluctant to do something which is critical of people who are, are doing God's work. Um, but this is a story that I find absolutely fascinating. Um, and and kind of let me back into this. I, I, I'm a dog lover, but most of my adult life, I, I didn't have, have a dog. When my late wife got sick, 
uh, she'd always off and on wanted a dog. And I kind of said, well, what are we going to do with a dog? Well, when, when she was diagnosed with what was a terminal illness, she said, I, I want a dog. And so she knew what kind she wanted. And, you know, we kind of did a national search and we, we found, we, we found the, the dog that, that I now have. And I admit that I was thinking, oh my gosh, is this going to kind of be overwhelming? We've got, you know, th- this other stuff going on and now we got the dog. And, and during what I would call our cancer year, having this, having this dog was the greatest thing in the world. I just, it just was because because it gave you something to, to, to deal with besides the, this terrible disease. And after my, my late wife passed away, it, it was the same sort of thing. It was kind of, it was me and the dog. And, and now I think people know I, I'm remarried. One of the greatest things is that the dog just absolutely loves my wife. Just I, I'm kind of like chopped liver. I mean, I, I'm kind of chopped liver, but absolutely loves my wife. And, and, and we love, we just love the, the dog. Um, my dog is two and a half years old, and this breed, if well taken care of, lives 12, 13, 14, 15 years. So hopefully we've got a lot of good years that we are going to spend together. Um, I, I, But, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, and I, I think, okay, 10 years from now, for example, if something were to happen to Sasha or 12 or 13 years from now, would, would I want to get another dog? Actually, I have thought about I've, – I've, I've thrown out the idea of maybe we should get a second dog, and that as much as Fran loves – my dog, our dog, our dog. It, the second one isn't going to happen. I, I, that's and and that's probably just as well. But you you do sit, sit there and think, okay, is it fair to the dog? Um, is 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 you want to be fair to the dog? How old is too old to have a dog? What what if you know your health isn't that great? You know, should you have these concerns? Which brings me to the story that was reported on today's TMJ four. There's this animal rescue group out of Heartland called Fluffy Dog Rescue. They adopt dogs to dog lovers in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Illinois. Matter of fact, I, I went to the Fluffy Dog Rescue site, and, and these are people that seem very, very dedicated to what they do. you got pictures of the dogs that they have. Um, and, and like I say, I, I think they're doing God's work. Okay, so here's the story on today's TMJ4. There's this woman. She's 70 years old. Her name is Mary. Her husband passed away about three years ago, and she wants a companion. So she, she's looking at adopting a rescue dog through through this group. So um, she sends in an application because obviously the group, you, know, you want to screen people. You want to make sure that you're finding good matches. And I, I respect all that. So um, she sends in her application for a dog. And in an email response to her application, Fluffy Dog Rescue says in part that it has a, now I'm quoting from the email, a philosophy of adoption for life. She wanted, this Mary wanted to adopt a, a one-year-old puppy, right? She's 70 years old. So the group says, we have a philosophy of adoption for life. We feel there are other dogs that may be more suitable to you. In your case, it would be a dog aged three or older. Now, the lady says, I plan to get a young dog so that it will fly with me and be able to go under my seat and go wherever I go. So the group is apparently saying, you're 70 years let, Let's be honest here. The group is apparently saying, you're 70 years old. Um, you shouldn't have a puppy because we don't want you to, the puppy, to outlive you. 
Um, Fluffy Dog Rescue says its mission is to put rescue dogs in lifelong homes and that we have established a formula for our older applicants to do our best to accomplish this. Um, with this said, and this is what they say to the gal's mother, your mother fits into a category of only being able to adopt a dog that is three years or older. Okay, to which the daughter says, well, my mother's looking for a lifelong companion. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The woman is being told, we will not allow you to adopt a dog from us that is younger than three years old. We'll, we'll let you adopt a three-year-old dog or older, but you're 70 years old. We don't think it's a good idea for you to have a puppy or a dog that's one year old because, let's be honest, we think that you're going to die before the dog does. All right, 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, it pains me somewhat to have this conversation because, again, animal rescue places, I, I God bless them. I, I mean, I, I think this is the greatest thing in the world. Having said that, I think this is just incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? Stupid. I, I, I mean, seriously, if you, if you have somebody who is in good health, who knows who knows how long this 70-year-old woman is going to live? She could live to be 95, or trust me, I understand that life is short. You can go into a doctor's office tomorrow and get some life-changing diagnosis. Who is somebody to say that, gee, at the age of 70, we don't think you should be able to have a dog that is, you know, um, younger than three? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me take a break, then we'll be back to talk about this. I... I it, it is mind-boggling. To me, you look at, all right, the, first of all, does the person want to adopt the rescue dog? Secondly, are they a good fit? Are they a decent person? Do they have a good home? Will they be able to take care of the dog? Not, gee, you're 70 years old, and, you know, we think that you're going to die before the dog does. 414-799-1620. It's 141. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 144, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to be talking about the decision not to issue criminal charges against the idiot that puts the gun in the kid's backpack and sends him off to school um, in Menominee Falls. But right now, we're talking about the story that was on today's TMJ4. 70-year-old woman goes to the, this rescue operation, this animal rescue operation out of Heartland, says she and she wants to adopt a one-year-old dog. Wonderful when she lost her husband a couple years ago. Good home. She wants a young dog. The animal rescue place says, we are not going to allow you under our policy to adopt a dog older, younger than three years old because we have a adopt for a lifetime policy. So in other words, what they're saying is we think you're going to die before the one-year-old dog will, and we think that will be bad. Who knows when people are going to be able to die, for goodness sakes, 414-799-1620. Let's start with Ellen in Milwaukee. Ellen, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Uh, I, I agree with you completely, and I can tell you that I have a dog who I adopted from the Wisconsin Humane Society. She is just turned 10 years old, or I'm sorry, 11 years old, and I got her 10 years ago when she was one year old. Mm-hmm. I'm 72, and I don't know if I'm going to outlive her because she's probably got another three, <laughs> four, five years. Yeah. Um, I kind of hope that I will, but uh, only so that I can bury her before I die. Right. 
know. Right, but but I mean, you're gonna you will make as a responsible pet owner, you're gonna make arrangements. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, Ellen, it, it 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 you never know when your number is up. I mean, you could be 45 years old and die in a car crash tomorrow. Hopefully, that's not gonna happen to anybody, but but that could happen. You know, you right. just a responsible pet owner makes arrangements, whether they're 70 years old or 80 years old or 35 years old, for what's gonna happen to the dog in case something happens to you. And my recommendation to this lady is that she call the Wisconsin Humane Society. We have several uh, branches all over sure. the state. And um, we can find a dog for her that will be the way she wants it to be. Yeah, no, th- right, th- right. thanks for calling. And I understand why you would want a... I understand why you would want a, a younger dog. And a matter of fact, I don't think somebody's necessarily being selfish. Okay, you've lost your spouse, and you're sitting there saying, okay, I'm 70 years old, I've lost my spouse. I, I don't... I, I don't want a dog that's eight or nine years old or whatever because I, I don't want to fall in love with this dog and then a couple years from now, you know, have to go through this. I mean, I, I think it, it's different for every different person. But to tell somebody you're too old to have a puppy at the age of 70, I think is, I think it's absolutely insane. Tobin in Three Lakes. Tobin, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. We're going through the same thing right now with my 90-year-old mother-in-law. Okay. Uh, she lost her husband, I think she was 77, 78 at the time. She picked up a black lab, um, and now last year the black lab died after I think she was 12 years old. Right. And my mother-in-law needs another dog, and she we found one through a, um, a service, a rescue service. Mm-hmm. During the application process, they said, nope, you're too old for this dog. We can't give you that dog. <laughs> now, there's my mother-in-law, she lives in Fargo, North Dakota. She makes a trip to Wisconsin twice a year, coming back and forth to her cottage. She drives. She's healthy, as probably healthier than I am. <laughs> right. And they won't let her have a dog because she's 90 years old. And we've already made her. She's, now she's found another dog through a private person. Right. And we've made arrangements that if something were to happen to sure. her, that dog is going to another home. Sure, ab- absolutely. Which is what you, any you know any responsible pet owner would, would do. With, I mean, okay, I, I, I have... I have if if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, okay, I have documents that says what happens to the dog. You know, now, now my my wife would take him, but if we both get hit by a bus tomorrow, I have made arrangements for what's going to happen with the dog. That's what you end up doing. But to tell somebody whether they're ninety two or they're seventy that they're too old to own a pet, I, I think really sucks. I just do. Pardon my French. <laughs> Definitely ridiculous. I mean, she was devastated when this happened. She found the dog. She wanted everything. The dog loved her. It was a great, you know, you could see it was a great situation. Like, nope, you're 90, year, 90 years old. You can't have it. No, thank, thanks for calling. Now, again, I, I, I want to be fair to this rescue group. They are not saying they won't let the woman adopt. They are saying they won't let her adopt the dog that she wants because they will only let her adopt a dog that is three years old or older. So they're not saying you can't have the dog. But I do seriously wonder if instead of 70, if she was 80 and wanted a dog, would they just say, no, you're, you're too old to have any sort of dog? Uh, and that that just strikes me as being wrong. And I hate to beat up on the dog rescue group, but you know what? It, do your background investigation. Determine what kind of home is the dog going to be going to. Is the woman able to take care of the dog? Are there arrangements in case something happens to to her that the dog will be taken care of? Those are all sort of fair questions to ask. But I mean, I would be asking that you know whether whether she was thirty or fifty or seventy before I allowed the adoption. But just this arbitrary thing that you know we're not going to allow you to have a puppy. That I think is what the problem is. Chris in Appleton. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. 
Hi. Hi, Chris. It breaks my heart for the lady, first of all, to, to feel now that she's, you know, lost the dog that she was already falling in love with. But we had, we had specific breed for 31 years. I'm also a widow. My oldest one is 13 and a half, and she was a rescue at age three. So nobody beats me up for the fact that I bought a puppy from a breeder at age 69. I'm now 71. The puppy's 18 months. The breeder never blinked when we had our interview about sure. judging my age. And I have in two places in my car, in my purse, and to anybody who will take it, including <clears throat> like my financial manager, my lawyer, they all have a just fully printed out instructions right. of what to do with Peaches and Lily <laughs> if anything happens to me. And it's loaded with phone numbers and people and who does what, and there's even a SEP IRA that goes <laughs> for their care. Right. So, you know, older people take care of their animals, and they love their animals, and they're alone, and they their animals yeah. are so important with, to them to have, and they take care of the future. We know we might die before our pet. Even at 71, the pet will probably live till I'm 84, and who right. knows, but... It's taken care of. Well, you know, and who knows? Maybe, maybe you're going to want another pet. You know, maybe you know a couple of years from now, maybe you're going to decide you want another dog. And and as long as you're healthy and you're able to take care of the dog and you're able to mm-hmm. give the dog a good home, why shouldn't you be able to adopt another puppy? That's, I mean, it just makes no sense to me. Right, and if a, a rescue of this breed comes up, like did thirty or ten years ago when we got our other one at that time, who's still alive? You know, I might be real tempted to bring in uh, a little bit older yeah. no, rescue if, I, if I'm if i allowed to adopt it. So, I, first of all, isn't it age discrimination for even asking her age on the form? Well, it's, you know, it's not a government agency. I don't know. I'd, ha- I'd have to kind of think that, I'd have to sort of think that through, but it does... Yeah, you know, if you would allow a fifty-year-old to do it, but not a seventy-year-old, that's kind of thanks. That is sort of an interesting. That is sort of an interesting theory. Now I don't know how the law re- replies to whether the various age discrimination laws apply to like agencies like this that do this stuff. But again, it I, to me the question would be: Are you are are you able to take care of the dog? And if you are this arbitrary limit, oh, we're going to look at the actuary tables and you know, look. And I understand that that maybe there's a value to adopting an older dog, and, and maybe you know that does in fact make more sense for some people. But I, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to tell everybody out there who's 70 years old or older that I don't think you can take care of a puppy. I, I'm just I'm I'm not. Now there might be some people at the age of 70 who can't because of physical disabilities or illness or or whatever. Okay, that that's fine. But that's a case by case situation. There's probably Probably people who are in their 40s who shouldn't be adopting a puppy either. This arbitrary age thing, and I, again, I, I hate to beat up on the shelter because they're doing God's work. There's no question about it. But, but they're wrong. They're just flat out wrong if they are assuming that you know somebody who's 70 years old, it, you know, shouldn't have you know a puppy. They're they're just wrong if they're doing that. Believe me, I mean, as you get older, one of the things that you learn is that life is short. Secondly, you, you learn that, you know, life life is full of surprises, and you just never know what's going to be around that corner. And every every time you think you've got it all figured out, and then, you know, life kind of throws you a little bit of a curveball, both good and bad. It, it just does. But this idea, 70 years old, no puppies, no, nah, I'm sorry, don't buy that. It's 154. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
157. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Boy, time is flying. Coming up in about 12 minutes, uh, the Waukesha DA's office, which is not what it once was. And I'm sorry, I hate to say that, but for, for a long time, the Waukesha DA's office, I think, was a, a shining example of the way DA's offices should be run. And and I, I think back on some of the, the people that were the DA's, Brad Schimmel, who's now the Attorney General, before that, Paul Bucher, before that, uh, John Fryatt, who was one of my friends and colleagues in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, the DA's office is not what it was. And um, they've, they've had a, a series of, I think, really questionable decisions that they've made. And there's another one that, that's out there, and we're going to talk about it in just a couple minutes, the whole story about uh, the, the people that put the gun in the kid's backpack and send him to the elementary school will walk away with no charges at all. And I have some issues with that. In addition, there's this new story, and Steve Scafidi talked about it briefly. I, I have a, a slightly different way to approach the story than Steve did. Um, there are uh, scientists that are out there now saying, hey, if we really care about drunk driving, what we need to do is we need to lower the drinking, the legal not the legal age, but we need to lower the legal blood alcohol level from 0.08 to 0.05. For the longest time, it, it used to be before you could be found guilty of driving above the legal limit, you had to have a blood alcohol level, how, 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 blood alcohol level of 1.0. Then it got lowered to 0.08. Um, now there's some people saying we should lower it to 0.05. I disagree. We're going to be talking about that. And... You know, I know there's a lot of people out there that want to beat up on the governor for a decision he made a long time ago not to accept federal money to try to put in a high-speed rail line between Milwaukee and Madison. All right, California, which, of course, is is one of the leaders of really bad ideas. California um, was interested in building this track from which a, a, they want to run a bullet train. You know, you have bullet trains that run through different parts of, of Europe. Um, the estimate is... The cost of this bullet train that they are trying to to build originally was estimated at six billion dollars. Six billion dollars. Okay, now a couple years into it, the new estimate is ten point six billion dollars. It is close to doubling. And so for everybody, whenever you talk about light rail and you hear this idea about the Barrett's trolley system and stuff, and don't worry, it's going to cost this, don't be surprised if when push comes to shove, when the metal meets the meat, when the rubber meets the road, um, it ends up being twice as expensive as we originally thought. Okay, coming up, should you really be able to put a gun in a kid's backpack and have no consequences? It's 159. It's 2.09, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, getting swamped with emails and texts from people who think it's silly that they should be told that you can't adopt a dog, you know, you can't adopt a puppy if you're 70 or older. A a dear friend of mine, who I play golf with every week, just sent me a note saying that he and his wife, who've had dogs their entire life, he said, you know, we're going to be 80 next year. I can't believe it. They're going to be 80 next year. And, you know, nobody asked us our age when we got our puppy, you know, a year ago. Of course not. Yeah, that couldn't be the question. The, shouldn't, the question should be, can you give the animal, can you give the dog a good home? Are you going to be good, loving parents? And if so, it shouldn't make any difference how old you are. All right. 
Uh, the Waukesha District Attorney's Office, and I said this before the break, and I don't, I don't take any pleasure in saying this necessarily either. It, it, in my opinion, has, for a variety of reasons, gone downhill in decisions that have been made over over the years. A lot of good DAs in that office. John Fryett was the Waukesha DA for a long time, then Paul Booker, and then Brad Schimmel. Um, over the years, some, some stuff has happened. They, they've made, I think, some questionable decisions. And there's been, candidly, some questionable decisions coming out of the Waukesha County Circuit Court bench as well. Don't get me wrong, it's not Dane County. Don't get me wrong, it's not a lot of the judges in Milwaukee County. But, but still, there have been some changes. All right, which brings me to the story that we talked about last week. You will recall what happens is there is a young child. And it's either a kindergartner or a first grader. They're not, they're, they're not going into details about this to kind of protect people's identities. The kid shows up at Shady Lane Elementary School in Menominee Falls. And what's happening is at the end of the day, the teacher is packing the child's backpack and notices that it seems particularly heavy. And so they, they look in it and they find a handgun that is in the child's backpack, all right? At which point, and the kid apparently didn't know that the gun was there. The kid didn't pull out the gun. Oh, by the way, the gun was loaded, loaded handgun in the small child's backpack. So what happens is that the teacher finds this. Kid didn't know it was there, and then they have like a school aide that takes the gun down to the, the principal. So no harm, no foul, nobody shot, nothing like that. And they call the police, and the police begin, you know, investigating, you know, what happened and how a young child brought a loaded handgun to the elementary school. All right, here's what the district attorney's office says. This is the, what the police report says. Friday morning, the child's father dropped his vehicle off at a repair shop. His girlfriend followed him in a separate vehicle. While the father was inside the shop, his girlfriend was gathering his belongings from his vehicle. So dad has taken his car in. Girlfriend is following Dad is in, giving him the keys, telling him what needs to be done, and girlfriend is act out going through the car that's going to be dropped off at the car place, um, going through his belongings. Um, the gun apparently was part of those belongings. So the guy legally allowed to care, permitted to possess the gun, so the gun is in the car, and his girlfriend is taking it out of the car before they leave it at the repair shop. All right, the girlfriend placed the firearm in a black nylon backpack she believed belonged to the father. Hmm. The bag actually belonged to the child. So the girlfriend takes the loaded gun and sticks it in the kid's backpack. The father had placed the child's backpack in his vehicle Thursday, and the girlfriend didn't know that it looked like the backpack he normally carries. All right, so... Girlfriend apparently doesn't pick up on the fact that this is a five- or six-year-old kid's backpack <clears throat> when she sticks the loaded gun in there. After dropping off the vehicle at the repair shop, the father dropped the child off at school with the black backpack, not knowing that the firearm was inside the bag. All right, then the kid goes in. So it does appear that this is, you know, 
Nobody was intending to send the child to school with a loaded handgun, but that was the effect of this. Uh, the DA's office says the conduct here is not criminal, but it is a mistake. It serves as a good reminder to those who possess firearms to be diligent and cautious in handling them at all times. We should all be thankful that no one was hurt, which is really but for the grace of God. So the DA's office says we're not going to do anything. Hmm. All right. Now, this got me to to thinking because, again, you don't I, I understand that this was a, a mistake and that nobody intentionally sent the child to school with the loaded handgun. But nevertheless, they did. And I also understand that nobody was shot. Thank goodness. But th- this is extremely reckless and dangerous conduct. So I started looking at, at the statutes and. um you know, th- there is a statute. Whoever does any of the following is guilty of a misdemeanor. Endangers another's safety by the negligent operation or handling of a dangerous weapon. Hmm. All right, which gets me wondering. Are you endangering the safety of others by putting a loaded handgun in a backpack that belongs to a five-year-old, and then sending the five-year-old off to school. All right, 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The Waukesha DA's office says, nothing to see here. Um, it wasn't a crime. It was just a mistake, and nothing's going to happen to the dad. Nothing's going to happen to the girlfriend. Is this the right result? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. i got to tell you, I don't think so. I think this is so reckless, and I understand it was a mistake. I get that it was a mistake. I get that they didn't mean to send the loaded handgun to school with the child, but they did. They did. And the person that put that gun in the kid's backpack, I think, deserves to be held accountable. for. One, and I'm not saying put him in jail for 10 years, but there's nothing going to happen to this. And I think there's something wrong there. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 216. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Rich in Menominee Falls. Rich, your neck of the woods. Good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Jeff. What do you think? Hello? Hi, Jeff. Hi, Rich. What do you think? Uh, All I got to say to you is, really? It's an honest mistake. Come on. Okay. He, he didn't even put it in his, in the backpack. The wife did, or the girlfriend. The girlfriend, yep. Well, I wasn't saying who I thought should get charged. Let me, Rich, let me let me change the facts with you. What if, what if instead of the teacher finding it, the kid had found it, and the kid is playing with the loaded gun? Would that change your Would that change your thinking any? That may change it a little bit, but that didn't happen. Okay, but what difference does it make whether the kid found it or not? They still sent him to school with the loaded gun. He didn't know the kid was going to school with the loaded gun. The girlfriend put it in his yep. backpack. Yep. That was his gun. It wasn't the girlfriend. Well, he didn't know should, where that gun was being placed. Well, I get no. I think no. She right. Right. It's a mistake all around. The girlfriend thinks the low-hit gun is going into his backpack. She's put it into the kid's backpack. The dad doesn't check the kid's backpack and sends him off to school. I guess my point is, though, I think that that 
that conduct is so incredibly reckless that it is exactly what they're talking about under the law. It's it's endangering another safety by negligent handling of a dangerous weapon, putting a loaded gun by mistake or otherwise, you know, under these sort of circumstances. And I guess, Rich, I would say this. If you would agree with me, if you say, well, okay, if the kid found it and was playing with it, that might change it. Well, what difference does that really make? The bottom line is that this conduct put the child in a position to be able to handle that that gun. It therefore endangered safety. Does it really make any difference whether the kid pulled it out of the the knapsack or not? Again, look, I'm not arguing that the girlfriend, for example, or the dad goes to jail for five or ten years. I'm not. But I do think there should be some consequence for what is just incredibly, in my opinion, reckless behavior. And just to write it off as nothing to see here, well, and again, you know, when we talked about this last week, before we knew all the facts and decision, had a call from a guy in the inner city of Milwaukee. And he said, you know, if this was not Menominee Falls, if this same set of facts, and, and you get parents, you know, from the inner city of Milwaukee who do the same thing, would the reaction be different? And I said, well, I don't know what the reaction would be different. My reaction would be, I don't care whether it's MPS or whether it's Menominee Falls, I think anybody who handles a gun in this fashion, in this reckless regard, deserves to have some consequence. 414-799-1620, Michael in Bayside. Michael, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Of course it was reckless. There should be some crime. Either way, they were leaving a loaded firearm around the kid. Yes. And why was this guy carrying a loaded firearm around in a backpack? That's illegal unless you have a concealed carry license. Uh, other than that, and, and the only reason I can see doing it is if it's part of your job. It must not have been part of his job because he didn't know it wasn't there until he got a call about it. So... Right. There's no way this isn't reckless, and the type of person that would do this is also the type of person who would lie about what happened. Yeah, no, I don't know that. Right, I mean, thanks for calling. I don't, I don't know that. We're assuming that this is the facts, that this is this is what the, the DA's office is putting out in, in their statement. Now, some people are pointing out, they say, well, wait a second, what happened, you know, a while back in Wauwatosa, what about the woman who, who left the loaded gun in the bathroom at the church? And, you know, they originally charged her and ended up having to dismiss the case after a judge made a ruling. Well, that, that was true, but, of course, that's different. In, in that case... In that case, the, the loaded gun that she left in the bathroom of the church, it, it wasn't, it, it was never exposed to children. Like a custodian found it. And so you could argue that nobody's safety was really endangered. In this case, you had this child that was walking around in possession of the gun the entire day. I mean, I'd argue that that's a little bit different. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to uh, Jeff in Wauwatosa. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Um, I, well, I think Rick was uh, completely off the wall. Um, this this guy gives all of us concealed carry people a bad name. There's already people that anti-guns and hate guns, and this is a complete lack of, of responsibility. When you are dropping off your vehicle at a place and are going to leave it, that gun should be the first thing that you worry about. I do believe the story that you know it, the girlfriend did grab and clean out all the stuff and put it in his bag. Like that, I, I can believe the story. But that is still a breaking the law and endangering the lives of others. That gun is the most important thing that he has mm. in his possession as far as safety. Yeah, I guess. And, and, and 
and, and is, is this the same as knowingly sending the kid to school with the gun? No, it's not. But it, but it's essentially the equivalent of of leaving that gun in a position where the, the kid could find it. And that's certainly you know what happened here. What? And you know, and, and and to me, it's kind of the same. There's got to be some accountability. What it tells me, Jeff, is that now from the time he dropped his car off to the time the kid went to school and everything, he did not even acknowledge or remember where that gun was, and that's where I got a problem with it. Yeah, uh, well, right, and well, and I think what thanks for calling. I mean, I think what happened is that they've got his knapsack looks like the kid's knapsack, and it just they, they just didn't look inside it. The, the, the girlfriend ended up getting mixed up, and, and I don't know. I don't know if I'd be charging the dad or the girlfriend or, or both. And again, I'm not saying put him in jail for a couple of years, but this idea that it was just a mistake and people need to be more careful. Well, well wait a second. You know, something really bad could have, have happened. And if the conduct, I mean, I, I see, I just kind of play this out to its logical extreme. Does it really make any difference whether the kid found the gun or not? If the kid had found the gun, pulled it out and shot himself or somebody else, Everybody would be saying, well, of course, you know, you have to find somebody to charge how reckless this was. Does the fact that it was the teacher that found it through the grace of God instead of the kid, does that really change the underlying irresponsibility of of letting the gun, loaded handgun, in the kid's knapsack in the first place? Tanya in West Dallas. Tanya, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Josh. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to say I agree with you. Um, the parents should be held um, somewhat accountable for this um, at some point because, I mean, who, number one, carries around a loaded handgun inside of a backpack, period, um, adult or child. I mean, anything could be inside that backpack. A pen, a pencil goes through the trigger and it goes off. Um, I think that's negligent handling of a firearm, period. Well, if I was if I was taking my car to a a if I was leaving my car, you know, to be fixed for the day, I don't think I'd be driving around with a gun in, in the first place. I think I'd, I'd probably leave the gun at home. That would just be kind of me. Yeah, yeah. that's a little common sense, but yeah. not everybody has that grace in life. I guess. Yeah. No, it's thank, well, Tanya, no, thanks for the call, Tanya. I mean, I look, and, and I understand it. It's actually our, our calls and texts are about split 50-50, people saying it's an honest mistake. And I, I appreciate it was a mistake, but a lot of stuff that people do that you have some degree of accountability for are mistakes. Were they trying to send this kid to school with the idea that you're going to have a shooting in the school? No, I, I get all that. I understand it. but and, and this comes from the perspective of somebody who is a firearm owner and does support Second Amendment rights. You've got to be responsible when you handle firearms. You just do. And these are the types of stories that I think play into the anti-gun crowd. Gee, all these people with guns are crazy and they're walking around and look at this. They put that they were they took so little care that they put the gun. They allowed this kid this gun to get into a backpack of a you know an elementary school child. And that's why when people do engage in irresponsible behavior, I, I think there needs to be some degree of accountability, not just no harm, no foul. It was a mistake. It's two twenty-six. We're back with lots more in just a minute, including a discussion of. Are the drunk driving limits too high? Stick around. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. State Supreme Court race will be the first statewide race in 2018. And it it really is very interesting. These are 10-year terms. And as, as we've seen over the last several years, the makeup of the state Supreme Court is extremely important. If you don't have conservatives on the bench 
You, you don't get Act 10. You don't get a lot of the reforms. If you have activist judges in the mode of, for example, former Chief Justice Shirley Abramson, you know, it, it's pretty much Katie bar the door. You're going to have judges who just kind of decide, well, we want to kind of decide, regardless of what the law is, we just want to decide what we think the right outcome is, and then sort of rearrange the law to that. So one of right now there are seven members of the state Supreme Court. Five are from the conservative side, which doesn't mean that they always vote together, but they, they are what I would call, again, conservative jurists, which means they appreciate the rule of law. And you've got two liberal judges. When I say that, I mean they are activist judges. One of the conservatives is retiring, Michael Gableman, which means there is a vacancy. Um, there are three people running. One is a corporate lawyer named Tim Burns out of Madison, who is very, very, very far to the left. And he's been running sort of an interesting judicial campaign because normally the people who run for judge say, well, we, we can't tell you how we would vote on different things. Um, you know, we want to wait till the case comes before us. Burns is out there. He's telling anybody who asks that that unabashed liberal. I would have voted against this Scott Walker reform. I would have voted against that Scott Walker reform. I would approve this. I would approve that. He's being very clear, and, and he's running extremely to the left. Um, the second person that's running is a Milwaukee County judge named Rebecca Dillette, who is, well, she's kind of typical of a lot of the judges you have in Milwaukee County. She is a left-leaning judge, in my opinion. She's not a whacked-out lefty like Tim Burns is, but she is. she would be part of, in my opinion, the liberal voting block. That is kind of her track record as a general rule. And then you have a third uh, candidate, uh, Sauk County Circuit Judge Michael Skranek, who we've had on the program at least once, maybe twice, I forget. He he is the judicial conservative in the race. So you've got a three-way primary. I think most people figure that the word is going to get out, and, and Skranek, the conservative, is going to be one of the two that comes through the primary. The other two, Dillette and Burns, are fighting for the left type of vote. And at various appearances over the last few weeks, Dillette has been trying to move herself further and further to the, the left um, in, in order to get some votes. And Burns is just kind of way out there on the vote. The, the Burns campaign it has started, again, um, it's interesting. They've been doing opposition research, and, and they're, they're, it appears to me that they are going after Dillette um, by you know citing rulings that might even suggest that she is a conservative you know it's just it, it's just amazing but you've got these two the one really 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 far left guy and the one moderately left person they're now kind of running against each other to see who emerges from this i i don't know i mean i always assumed it would be Skrenik and it would be Dillette. although people i know in madison are saying no it's you you don't understand that you're just you have your myopic southeastern wisconsin view that this tim burns um, might come out of the primary. If Tim Burns comes out of the primary and were to be elected, he would be the most liberal justice, certainly in a long time, on the state Supreme Court and maybe one of the most liberal justices in the country. I don't think the state is ready for that. I, I will at some point in time make a prediction and might even try to, once we get through the primary, host a candidate debate. But this this race is shaping up. It is extremely, extremely interesting. Burns is putting um, a lot of money into the race. Uh, Rebecca Dillette raised a bunch of money, and I have no doubt that there's going to be a bunch of money for the conservative judge as well. So, you know, keep tuned. It, it's going to be fascinating, and I don't think anybody really has a handle on 
of what's going to happen in this race. And of course, then the the overlying thing is, you know, is there a Donald Trump effect? You know, will will the conservative vote be suppressed? You know, in in April. You know, who knows? All right, let us switch gears. Um, years and years ago, the legal limit for driving an automobile in Wisconsin. Years and years ago, it was a blood alcohol level of 1.5. Then what happened is it was reduced to 1.0, and it was that for many, many years. And then what happened was the federal government decided that there should be a uniform level at 0.08. And so the federal government said, if you want to get federal highway money, you've got to lower the blood alcohol level to 0.08, and all the states did. And that's where it stands. Um, right now, the way it works is that uh, the, a state could have a higher level for drunken driving, but if you did, you'd lose federal highway money. You can, however, have a lower limit. And Utah has just decided to lower the limit for intoxicated driving to point zero five. Um, that goes into effect uh, later on this year. I bring this up. Because um, there was a group of scientists, the way this was reported was a prestigious scientific panel is recommending that states significantly lower their drunken driving thresholds as part of a blueprint to eliminate the entirely preventable 10,000 alcohol impaired deaths in the U.S. each year. Um, This was a report that was released Wednesday um, by a panel of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, which recommended lowering the legal drinking the, the threshold, the blood alcohol concentration threshold from point zero eight to point zero five. The amount of alcohol required to reach point zero five depends on lots of things, including how big you are and whether you'd already eaten. But a 150-pound man might be over that limit after two beers. A 120-pound woman could exceed it after a single drink. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Don't get me wrong. I am death on drunk driving. There's no question about it. And I've been one that has just railed at the the laws in Wisconsin that I thought have been really too lax on drunk driving for the longest time. Having said that, I do not think the answer is lowering the blood alcohol limit. 414-799-1620. I don't think that solves the problem. And candidly, I think lowering the blood alcohol limit from .08 to .05 Aren't, isn't going to, number one, make the streets safer, and number two, it is going to create a class of criminals out of generally responsible social drinkers. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Another factor is, you know, good luck running a tavern or a restaurant where you serve beers if two beers or one drink can get you over the legal limit. Am I being soft on drunk driving, or do I just live in the real world? 414-799-1620, we're back to discuss. It's 243, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Dane in Milwaukee um, asked kind of an interesting question. How many people arrested for drunk driving or involved in alcohol-related crashes have a blood alcohol level of 0.05 or even 0.08? Yeah, see, that's 
That is one of the many reasons why I object to this proposal. If you look at the problem of drunken driving in this state and in this country, what you typically find is, first of all, it's people who are drunk out of their minds. It's not the person who is at the point zero seven or the point zero eight. It's the person who blows the you know point two three. You know that's the thing, and it's the repeat drunk driver, the people that are out there over and over again driving without driver's licenses or driving after the license has been suspended who are blotto you know going after somebody who is at point zero six because they had that second glass of wine at the friday fish fry to me is just bringing tens of thousands of people into a criminal justice system for no purpose at all why don't we just say zero limit no no alcohol at all in your system i mean if that's the idea 414-799-1620 let's talk to jim and Krivitz. jim you're on wtmj hello hello what do you think uh, i well, you took my thunder away from me uh huh? it's foolish point oh eight or oh five or even point one oh those are not the people causing the accidents. The accidents are the point two five and two threes and point two zero, and I mean they're they're the ones that don't know what they're doing. You don't lose your ability at a point oh six oh five or point oh eight. I'll let the bag cat out of the bag. I used to try. Uh, I used to try lawsuits. I'm retired now. When it was point one five. Right back in the day, yeah. And I could win those cases because they didn't have breathalyzers. It was all in physical ability. Right. And if you, if you beat them up on that, you won. But it was high. I think at point one five, you're losing you know, a lot of ability. But point one oh isn't bad. Point oh eight, I think it, those are the Saints guys. You know, well, I agree with you. We might as well just, I've been in Germany. They've got complete sobriety. You cannot have one drink and drive a car. They all have uh, drivers. Because otherwise, you're going to make everybody a criminal. You, you, right, you are. Or, I mean, thanks for the call. Or, yeah, exactly. You're going to make everybody a criminal. You're going to catch a bunch of people who really aren't causing the, the problem. And, and look, don't, don't send me these texts saying, well, Jeff, you're, don't you realize 10,000 people die every year in alcohol-related crashes? Don't you care about that? Yes, I, I do. But, but this is not the answer to that. Because the people who are out there causing the havoc on the highway – they, they're driving at point three. At, they're driving at point three. They're driving three or four times higher than the legal limit now. Generally speaking, after they've had multiple convictions for the same thing, those are the people I want to put in jail. Those are the people that I want to get off the streets. You know, somebody, the hundred and forty pound woman who has you know two drinks, you know, after work along with dinner, you know, with her girlfriends, and then drives home. She's not the problem. You know, that's not where the problem is. And by the way, in the state of Wisconsin, a lot of people don't know this, but there's really two different statutes and laws with regard to drunk driving. One is driving above the prohibited concentration level. So driving with the point one instead of the point zero eight, that's a crime. And then driving while you're impaired, that's a separate crime. So even if somebody doesn't have like a point zero eight, but they're particularly sensitive to alcohol or whatever, and they're driving in such a way that they are impaired because of the alcohol, they can be charged anyways. So you're, you're not even really, you're not, what you are getting is you're getting the, the 160 pound guy that is, you know, has the two beers or maybe the three beers over the course of dinner who's not a danger driving home. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Chuck in Oak Creek. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. What do you think? I think that they ought to uh, raise the penalty extremely high. 
raise the the penalty for drunk driving high. Y- yes, absolutely. I uh, I used to live in Minnesota, and up there you get caught for drunk driving first offense. Mm-hmm. You uh, your whole household, any ad- any vehicle registered to that address has to have whiskey plates put on. Okay. Therefore, you know, if you're out after midnight, per se, uh, and uh, or near bar clothes, and they see you with uh, whiskey plates on, they have the right to pull you over, mm-hmm. you know, and, and pick you out just for the simple fact that, you know, you do have sure. a pecker. Sure. Right. No, because you're, you're on there. No, I mean, see, I mean, see, Chuck, don't, I, I mean, I, I get, I, I and this is, when, when I talk about drunk driving, I, I talk about the need to figure out penalties that correspond with the offenses. And, and right, if, if you're a convicted first time, if you're convicted first time or second time or third time or whatever, there, there need, I think, to be penalties that discourage you from, from doing that. And I have no problem with any of that. I have no problem, for example, with taking cars of the repeat drunk drivers as well. No issue with any of, of that. I'm just saying that I think what we need to do is we've got to be smart about this. And being smart means you concentrate your resources where the problem is. Is the real problem that is leading to the carnage on our roadways caused by drunk driving, is it really because of the 120-pound woman who goes out and has two glasses of Chardonnay um, after work with her friends and, and has a .06? Is that the problem, or is it... The, the guy that's been convicted of drunk driving four times, who doesn't have a driver's license, who's at the bar, sloppy drunk, pulls away three times over the legal limit, and slams into a car. Well, of course, the answer is it's it's that sloppy drunk with the multiple convictions. Why don't we spend our resources trying to go after that person, and then we can worry about all, all this other stuff? I just, I guess, and part of it is I am just not convinced that at point zero six, for example, you are so impaired that you can't drive an automobile. Now, th- th- does it mean is there probably some slowdown of reflexes or something like that? Yeah, there there, there probably is. There, there probably is. But at some point in time, you have to have this, like, what is the real world and where do we really balance this out? I think by doing something like this, like I say, you create a, a new class of criminal and you don't make the streets any safer. And as a corollary, you, you deal, you do essentially kill bar traffic and you kill restaurants because the truth of the matter is, you know, you're, you're getting pretty darn close to zero tolerance with this. And so, all right, should we just not be able to sell alcohol to people who are subsequently able to drive a car. And I guess I just don't believe that having that one beer means you're irresponsible if you get behind the wheel of the car as a general rule. All right. It is 254. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure and Melissa Barclay have on their minds. Wisconsin's Afternoon News is coming up. Stick around.